Tonight we continue our time in the book of Judges. Tonight we're in Judges 17 and 18. And uh, before we begin, I have a, a confession. It's kind of a, a funny confession, but it's a confession nonetheless. When I was in high school, I really enjoyed horrible movies. And by horrible, I don't just mean they were like poor quality. I mean like they were horrible in the truest sense, like morally. So horror, horror films, uh, just disgusting Hollywood comedies, those were the sorts of movies I really enjoyed. Uh, I started watching them when I was in elementary school and middle school, and I just didn't really have a filter for what was deemed good and pure and morally upright. It didn't really matter to me all that much. And with all of that said, um, confession time over, and now just let me tell you about my experiences watching these horrible movies. I remember the first time uh, I watched a movie and left feeling just utterly depressed because the movie was just that wretched. Uh, Maybe you've seen this movie. If you have, um, I'm not judging you. But if, if you liked it, then I am, because this movie is horrible. But it, it was a movie by a guy named Rob Zombie, if you've heard of him. Okay. Uh, he, 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 wrote, he, he came up with this movie, House of a Thousand Corpses. And yeah, so it's really bad. Uh, go figure. Uh, worst movie I've ever seen. Uh, the movie started on somewhat of an innocent note, and you have this innocent like family getting stuck into this house of a thousand corpses with these crazy you know people and the whole movie it just keeps getting worse and more wicked and more disgusting with every single scene until you get to the very end of the movie and you think that the innocent family has finally escaped when lo and behold you know the the wicked you know antagonist in the in the story the villain jumps out and he's going to like slit the guy's throat and then the credits start to roll and you're like, really? That's how you're going to end this? And you just feel disgusting walking away and depraved. That's how I felt, at least. I still remember that. But here's the thing. You know, Rob Zombie, he set out to make a purely wicked movie. And uh, to no one's surprise, he succeeded. You know, he, he accomplished his goal. And let me point out, though, that even in a movie that was that horrible or that wretched, there were at least a couple of characters who were at least somewhat innocent like they weren't the bad guy they were like the innocent bystander who just happened to get caught up in this mess they were the victims I mean really the whole movie was about these victims being tortured and uh, typically speaking at least in most films we watch even the worst movies or the worst stories that we read they have some element of a redeeming quality in them. Whether it's a character, whether it's the outcome of the story, even the worst movies will find some sort of theme of redemption, whether it is a character or whether it's, it's the plot, there's something that you can walk away with going, well, at least that wasn't horrible. That little part of the movie, at least, was redeemable. And I want to point out that up to this point, Every story that we've read about in the book of the Judges, there's at least been a hint of encouragement to be found. There's at least a hint of some sort of redeemable quality going on. So you take someone like Samson, who is a horrible man, a womanizer, wretched in so many ways, 
but yet, as we saw last week, at the very end of his life, he shows at least an ounce of faith towards God. Think of Gideon. All sorts of major ups and downs throughout his life. Doubts God. He, he doesn't go through with what he said he would do. Uh, but throughout the course of his life, at least there's some component of faith in his life. Jephthah, he's the fool we read about a few weeks ago who ended up sacrificing his own daughter. Uh, so yeah, not the greatest guy. And yet, even with a guy like him, there was at least an ounce of faith in him. Barak, he was a coward, unwilling to lead God's people. But hey, we have Deborah. Deborah offering us some hope that not everything is lost in Israel. Even the story of Abimelech, which is atrocious. If you remember, Abimelech's the guy who just made himself king by killing all of his 70 brothers and then just goes around and murders everyone in Israel. Even in that story, there is this guy named Jotham. He's the youngest brother who escaped from Abimelech, and he at least was willing to say that Abimelech's acts were evil. Right? So at least there's one guy in Israel at that time who you know, had a redeeming quality about him. But that leads us to the next two weeks. This week and what comes next week. Here, everything in Israel becomes darker and darker. We aren't going to find a redeeming character in our story tonight. And we're certainly not going to find one uh, next week. Things get worse. Uh, Worse next week. There aren't righteous characters. There are not happy endings. There are not these plot lines that are redeemable, everything just keeps getting worse. So without further ado, let's jump straight into chapter 17, where we find a hot mess of Israel's idolatry and immorality. So chapter 17, from the beginning, what we see is that Israel is engaging in religious pluralism. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. So the story kind of starts out on an interesting note. You have this guy named Micah who confesses his sin to his mother. He took 1,100 pieces of silver from her, which, by the way, I mean, this is a massive amount of money. This is a whole lot of money. It's probably 25 to 30 pounds of raw silver. I mean, this would be taking thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars from your your mom. Um, And she, at first, she utters this curse and says, whoever took that, may a curse be upon their head. And then Micah comes back to her and says, hey, uh, mom, that... Silver, I took it. So it seems as though from the very start of this story, you have this guy named Micah who's confessing his sin to his mother. Uh, and it seems as though the two are making amends because she, she goes, okay, blessed are you by the Lord. Look at verse 3. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord 
from my hands for my son. Again, so far so good. Everything seems to be great. Things are turning around for Israel, so it seems. You have this woman who's a, obviously rich, uh, and she's repenting, or, or her son is repenting to her, and now this mother is, is responding by blessing her son and telling her son, I'm going to dedicate the money that you took to me to the Lord. But keep reading. I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. So everything in a moment just took a a very quick turn to the south. The money that was meant to be dedicated to the Lord has now been dedicated to an idol, who, for some reason, the mother thinks is still to the Lord. But one funny thing about this is that she says, okay, I'm going to give all of this money to the Lord, but then she only takes 200 silver coins, And she only dedicates that to this idol, which she presumes is somehow an offering to the Lord. So what happened to the rest of it? We don't really know. But uh, here's another interesting thing to point out here. It's related to Micah's name. Micah's name in Hebrew, you don't see this in English, but in Hebrew, his name changes after verse 4. So that's right after the idols are brought into view. From verse 5 onward... His name has been shortened, and it's been obscured. Originally, his name is Mekahu, which means, who is like the Lord. And then, from verse 5 onward, it changes to Micah. So, in other words, the ending of his name has been removed. Well, the ending of his name was God's name. So, his name is no longer who is like the Lord. His name has been changed in order to demonstrate that this man whose name was supposed to speak to God's supremacy is now the man who's filling his home with idols and carved images. In a brief moment, everything has just been turned upside down. Now we're out in left field. The money that Micah originally stole from his mother that he then tried to return to her has now been turned into an idol. And then in verse 5, the story gets even more bizarre. Because here, Micah decides to appoint his son as his personal in-home priest. So, Micah is seemingly his mother's priest. After all, she has this carved image given to him. And now, Micah follows suit and makes his son his own personal priest. And you might not realize this, but for an Israelite, the fact that he made for himself a personal priest was just as damning as the fact that he, he decided to engage in idolatry. So, for now, we need to just stop and recognize that this man has just turned to the Lord from idols. He, his mother, and his son have just broken the first two commandments in a single moment. They're not worshiping the Lord their God their own, which, or, or their, the Lord their God alone, which is the first commandment, and they've crafted an idol for themselves, which is the second commandment. This is, by definition, religious pluralization. 
which is the idea that we can just conflate religions as though they are all accomplishing the same thing, and we can just mix and match however we feel. Israel, at this point in time, is very similar to our own culture that we live in today. We live in a culture very fond of picking and choosing whatever we want. We love the idea of combining all sorts of flavors. Right? That's why Baskin-Robbins, Robbins, Chipotle, and Mott are so successful. Right? You just walk in and choose whatever you want, just throw it all on the pizza. Who am I, the, the chef, to tell you what flavors go together? Sure, you can have whatever. Gummy bears on your pizza sounds good to me. And you, they'll do that for you, really. I mean, human beings, they have this tendency to just desire whatever they see fit in their own eyes. And we do the same thing with faith. A little of this and a little of that, that sounds good to me. Like, where's the blender? Let me just throw it all in and see what comes out. And yet, from the outset of the Ten Commandments, and all the way through the Scriptures, we are told over and over again that we cannot try to serve this hodgepodge of religions. We cannot treat God like He's one more topping available at Baskin-Robbins that we can just mix in with the rest of them. That's not who God is. As Micah's original name was meant to communicate There is no one like the Lord. The Lord stands alone. And so we cannot listen to the lies of our day and age that tell us that that God, our God, the God of the Bible, is the same as the God of Muhammad or the gods of Hinduism. And they're all just seeking to accomplish the same purpose. No one is like the Lord God. God alone demands your wholehearted devotion. He demands our allegiance. And God will not compete with other gods. As we, as we just read from 1 Chronicles, God is calling us to a wholehearted and soul devotion to himself. Now in verse 6, we finally hear the author give his input to what's going on here. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The acts of this one family, notice the words he's using here. The acts of this one family provide a depiction of what's going on in the entire nation. He looks at this family, he shows what's going on in this family, and he says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is just one example of many in the nation of Israel. This is just one little snapshot of what was going on throughout the entire area, as we're about to see. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone just did whatever they saw fit. Micah and his mother's idolatry prove they don't care what God deems fit. They only care about what they deem fit. And this mindset was prevalent everywhere in Israel, as we're about to see. So let's keep reading because things only get worse. So we're now looking at the rest of uh, chapter 17. And here, uh, this man named Micah, he begins to approach religion in yet another off-center way. Here's another inappropriate way. He begins to privatize God. So he goes from pluralization now to privatization. Into the scene comes a new character. Look at verse 7. 
Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, uh, whose name or who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me and be to me a father and a priest. And I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes for your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and he was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as a priest. So, this man who comes to Micah, First off, here's the first observation we have to notice. He is a Levite. So think back through your Old Testament history for a moment. Who were the Levites? What were the Levites meant to do? What was their purpose in Israel? Remember, the Levites were meant to be priests for the nation of Israel. And so from the very outset of this story we need to approach it with suspicion. Why is this Levite leaving Bethlehem in the first place? Isn't he supposed to be a priest serving the people of God? Why why is he leaving? Why is he just wandering about looking for a new place to stay? Is he just abandoning his duties as a priest? Now, we we can't really answer any of those questions definitively, but we do know that this was an act of disobedience for the Levite. He should not be leaving the land of his fathers in Bethlehem to go and just wander throughout the nation. We don't know why he's doing it. We don't know what his reason was. But we do know that this was not appropriate. This is not what the Levites were meant to do. So back to Micah now. He meets this man and he decides to broaden his spiritual horizons by adding another priest to his home. Verse 12, Micah decides to ordain this man as his own personal in-home Israelite priest now. So he's got this priest of all these false gods and he's like, hey, now I can, you know, add another priest to my home. But this one is going to be my servant of Yahweh. So we've already seen... uh, that Micah is up to his neck with pluralized religion, and now we see him diving into a privatized form of Judaism. So what is privatization of, of religion? It's an act of making your religion something that is completely individualistic, completely private. It's when you make Christianity and something that you do all on your own, apart from anyone else. That's privatized religion. It's when you decide, you don't need the church. I don't need the people of God. I don't need God's community. I have Jesus. I'm good. I'll do this on my own. Micah's privatization, it's utterly clear here. He's no longer going to engage in any form of biblical worship with God's people. Instead, he's turned Judaism into his own private, personal, self-orchestrated endeavor. He has his own priest. 
He doesn't need a congregation. He doesn't need God's people. He can do all this religious stuff in the comfort of his own home. And before we go and throw Micah under the bus, let's make sure we address the ways in which we are tempted to do the same exact thing. We tell ourselves all the time, it's fine if I do this on my own, right? right this temptation is so prevalent in our own culture. We wake up in the morning and on a Sunday and we say, I don't need to go to church. I can just watch it on, on the live stream. I don't really feel like going to church today. That's all right. And I don't want to criticize a live stream feed of, of a worship you know, event as some sort of evil or anything like that. Um, but we have to understand that there is a legitimate purpose and a benefit to something like a live stream. And there's also a downside to it. So here's what I mean. A, a, a live stream of like a service, like we do here on a Sunday morning. We film it. It goes out on the internet. You can watch the service from the comfort of your own home. That can benefit the shut-in. And what I mean by that, the individual who can't leave their house, the, the, the elderly woman who's on hospice and she can't leave her home, the fact that she can then watch a service from her home is a benefit to her. A live stream can benefit a family. Think of, think of a family with little kids. They wake up and realize all the kids are sick and they can't go to church now. And this guy's like, well, I, I lead a small group and we actually, you know, go through the Sunday sermon in our small group. In that sort of a situation, a live stream is a really huge benefit because now that guy who's leading a small group through this passage can take, stay home, take care of his kids, and yet still be familiar with what was discussed on Sunday morning. It can prove beneficial if you're traveling for work, right? There's all sorts of reasons why it can prove beneficial. And yet, it is not a replacement for meeting with the people of God. But you hear this all the time. I just want to relax this morning. I'm just going to watch it online. But there are other ways in which we can be tempted into this sort of isolationist Christianity privatized Christianity. I, I don't know if you've ever ran, in, ran into this, but think about the home church that's made up of like two or three families. And they just meet on their own and they're their own little church, if you will. Their home church, they do their own Bible study. You probably know someone who does this, right? You, you've heard of this or you've been a part of one of these before. This isn't always the case, but often those sorts of things happen when you have a couple of families who have grown bitter and angry at the church and they decide to shut everyone out and say, we're going to do this our own and we're going to do our own little church here at our home and we're only going to invite our friends. They leave the church, they leave the qualified pastors and leaders and they go and they appoint someone to be their own private pastor, who just so happens to be like their uncle, and he leads this quote-unquote church. That's not a church. That is a Micah and his personal Levite form of Christianity. Privatized Christianity, when you try to engage in this sort of thing, it's essentially like you're playing on a one-man football team. It's like you're trying to be the only member of an orchestra or a choir. It doesn't work. 
I mean, trust me, even like the greatest guitar player in the world is going to have a hard time standing on a stage all by himself, entertaining a crowd for an hour. Even the greatest soccer player in the world can't even beat like a high school soccer team single-handedly, let alone another professional team. But here's the issue. The stakes are far higher when we're talking about the church, especially in comparison with like a soccer game or something like that, right? We're not talking about a game. Now we're talking about your soul. And if you are going to try to isolate yourself from the people of God, you are committing spiritual suicide. You're destining yourself up or setting yourself up for failure. Just like just like the messy of the world who says, I'm going to play on this team all by myself. I don't need anyone around me. That results in nothing but tragedy. And we're going to see the same thing with Micah later on. So this chapter, before we move on, notice how it ends with Micah overjoyed for his future prospects. He, he closes this out with this certainty He knows the Lord is going to prosper him. Privatized religion, privatized Christianity will always lead to bad theology. Right? This is horrible theology. And the reason he has this horrible theology is because he's not surrounding himself by people who are speaking truth into his life. Instead, he's just deciding what he thinks is true. When you engage in this sort of personalized religion, you are going to run down all sorts of idolatrous rabbit holes, just like Micah. You see, Micah, he, in privatizing his his understanding of God, he has now resulted in an idolatrous understanding of God. He thinks that he has just guaranteed that God will give him good fortune. I got myself a personal priest, good fortune is on my way. That's not only bad theology, that's actually idolatry. That's not the way God works. He's not our servant. We serve him. God's life is not centered around serving you and making sure everything you desire in life is is given to you. No, that's not the way God works. Mike is going to learn this firsthand in the next uh, chapter. So as we move into chapter 18, this is the second scene of our story. And it begins when a group of men from one of the tribes of Israel show up at Micah's house. Look at verses 1 and 2. In those days, there was no king in Israel. That should be like a flashing light, a warning sign that everything we're about to read is, is not good. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe for Zorah and from Eshtaol to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and they lodged there. So you have this group of five men. They show up. They're spying out the land. They're trying to find a place to dwell. 
in this verse says they're basically wandering around looking for a land to inherit. Believe it or not, there's actually a lot going on here. This author is assuming that you know a lot right now. So what is he assuming that you know? First off, he's assuming that when you start to read in chapter 18, you are going to be kind of confused. You're confused because these men are looking for an inheritance, a land for themselves to dwell in. Well, that doesn't really make any sense because we've already seen God apportion a land to the tribe of Dan. He's already given them a place to inherit. And yet now they're looking elsewhere. So when you're looking at Israel, the nation, geographically, as they're moving into the hill country of Ephraim, they're actually moving away from the territory God had prescribed to them. They're moving outside of the borders God had allotted to them. They're just like the Levite we just read about. God had given the Levite a place to dwell, and he goes and sojourns looking for something new. Now we have the the tribe of Dan. They don't really care about the place God has given them, and they're going to look for a new inheritance. So now, after the Levite, we have the same thing going on with Dan, and lo and behold, they show up at Micah's house. So, when they arrive at Micah's house, we actually, actually before we go there, I want to show one more important detail that we shouldn't miss before we, we move forward. In this passage, we actually have a comparison going on. We'll see this come up over and over again. It's, it's a comparison with the moment when Israel first entered into the land as, a, as they were conquesting in the land. And, and remember, the Israelites, before they entered into Canaan, they sent spies into the land. So this story, the author is trying to help us see, this story is compared to what happened when Israel first came to the land of Canaan. This is, in a sense, the the tribe of Dan is reenacting the original entrance into the promised land. So, now we move into verses 3 and 4. And we see that Micah receives these visitors, uh, and these visitors happen to meet the Levite. So when they were uh, by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He's hired me, and I have become his priest. Now, I just have to ask, I, I don't really know what in the world this means, that they recognize the voice of this Levite. It's like one of those weird details where it's, did you know him from somewhere? But it doesn't really answer it. It just says they recognized his voice, and they said, wait a second, I know you. But it doesn't explain how they know him. Who knows, right? It's one of those funny details. doesn't have any explanation. But look now at the way they start to interrogate this Levite. They start asking him all this, these questions. Why are you here? What, what are you doing in this place? What business do you have here? And Micah responds by giving all of the wrong reasons. Especially in light of what Levites were called to do. He shouldn't be working for wages. He shouldn't be working for an apostate, right? Micah at this point is an apostate. Why, why are you working for this guy? 
why, why are you a personal priest in the first place? Like, that's not a thing. What are you doing here? According to the law, Micah should have been held, should have been held accountable for his actions by Israel. The priest also should have been held accountable for his actions by Israel. And so, we should expect the Danites to be asking these questions with a hint of scorn. They should be interrogating this Levite and saying, what are you doing here? Like, it's, it's absolutely wrong for you to be here. In fact, if you look at Deuteronomy, the Levite and Micah, for that matter, they both should have been stoned for what they're doing right now. And so, for Dan, that's Deuteronomy 13. So, so Dan, and asking these questions, at first you're going, okay, those are good questions. You should be asking those questions. Uh, this, may, this makes me ask, though, like, what, what sort of tone do you think Dan had as they were coming to this Levite. Do you think they were accusatory? Do you think they were, you know, essentially rebuking him with their questions? Well, we kind of find out in verse 5. They said to him, Okay, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you uh, go is under the eye of the Lord. Clearly, they're not criticizing the Levite. Instead, they're essentially saying, well, this is pretty convenient. Look at this. We have a priest right here. Why don't you do your thing and talk to God for us and try to sort this all out? Are we doing what God wants us to do? And in reality, the way that the Danites even refer to God shows that they don't actually have any real concern or fear of what God has to say. And we see this because they don't refer to God as Yahweh. They refer to him as Elohim. And Elohim is just this generic word for God. So it's as though they don't even have a legitimate relationship with Yahweh. They're just referring to him as another God who might bless them as they go out on their way. God is not their God. They view him as just another deity. These men are just like Micah. Hey, look, look what we have here. We have God, and he can answer this question for us. They have the same sort of pluralistic, genie-esque sort of understanding of who God is. The same one Micah had. And notice now that... uh, the Levite answers the Danites and he says, go in peace. This is all under the eye of the Lord. The Levite should have turned to the Danites now after not rebuking him and he should have rebuked them. Like, what are you doing here? Why are you going and looking for a new land? Why? So essentially everything about this conversation is backwards. You see... The Levite's response is condemnable. He should know that these men are in disobedience, and he should know very well, as a Levite, that God does not bless disobedience. If you're going to ask God to ask you to or to help you pass a class while you're cheating on all of your tests, I mean, do you understand the the, the difficulty in that situation? It's, it doesn't work. If, if you're asking God to bless your relationship with your girlfriend or your boyfriend while you guys are sleeping together every night, do you, do you understand there's an issue there? God, God isn't going to bless that sort of relationship in the way that you want him to bless it. That's not the way God operates. 
So from here, we really start to see some connections to the original conquest of the land. Remember what happened. Israel was about to enter into the land. They send spies. And now we have these men in, from Dan. They're sending spies. In, in the first instance, when Israel went, the spies came back and they began to persuade the nation into fear. Even though God had explicitly given them the land of Canaan, when the spies came back, they convinced everyone in Israel, no, we don't want to do this. I know God said we can, but we saw that land, not a good idea. There are giants there. There's all sorts of things to be afraid of. But notice here, that's not the case. The tribe of Dan responds in the exact opposite way that the original Israelites responded. Look at verse 9. They said, Arise, and let us go against them. For we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into our hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So 600 men from the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons for war, set out for Zorah, and, or from Zora and Eshtaol. I mean, this story shows that the men of Dan are really brave. They go, yeah, we're going to take this land. And they only send 600 men. They're confident. They're going, we don't need a huge army. We're going to go take this land for ourselves. There is no fear in their eyes. So in this story, we have a disobedient tribe that feels uh, uh, confident to accomplish their mission after receiving counsel from a wayward spiritual leader. Contrast that with the original Israelites who were skeptical to go into the land even after God told Moses that the land was theirs. What's the difference in these two scenarios? Last time, the Israelites were being disobedient by not entering into the land. Now, the, the Danites are disobedient for entering into the land. Before, Israel was being disobedient because they were not listening to the voice of the Lord. Now, the Danites are being disobedient because they're listening to the, to the voice of this wayward spiritual leader, this Levite. Here's the point. Disobedience is always easier. I think that's the point here. People are funny like that. We always find it far easier to fall into disobedience. Before the Danites disobey by entering into this um, unpromised land, though, they make sure to make the story a little bit more complex. They stop back at Micah's house. So, verse 15. So as they're on their way to the unpromised land, verse 15, and they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite and at that moment, or and at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when they went into Micah's house, 
and took the carved images, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal images, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet, put your hand over your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. It is better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest to a tribe and clan of Israel. And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved images and went along with the people. So from there... Micah now comes out and he begins to confront these 600 men and then he realizes there's 600 of them and he says, never mind, I'm going home. And he walks away sad. (laughs) So much for the promise that now that he has his own personal priest, everything's going to go great for him. And then Dan, they go to the city, they overtake it, they kill all of the inhabitants, They repossess the city, and they change its name to Dan. And here's what we read in the final comments about the people of Dan. Verse 30. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Geshem, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So the moral of the story is that God's people have removed Canaanites from this land, but they have not removed the ways of the Canaanites from their own hearts. We've seen this story over and over again in the book of Judges. God called them to enter into the land which he prescribed for them. God called them to have a wholehearted devotion to himself. And yet now, they are entering into a a land not God prescribed in order to worship false gods. They're in a foreign land, in disobedience, committing idolatry. This is where the gospel, though, proves so significant. You see, Israel's problems were not solved when they entered into the promised land. That's what they thought. They thought all of our problems are going to be solved when we enter into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. Things are going to be great. And yet the promised land failed to offer that sort of hope because the promised land failed to change their hearts. In fact, this story is abundant proof that externalities cannot change the heart. You can put them in the promised land, but that's not going to change the fact that they have brought their idolatrous hearts with them into the promised land. And so that's what happens. They enter the promised land with their idolatrous hearts, and their idolatrous hearts begin to reap havoc throughout the land. Notice there's kind of a glimmer of hope here that they worshipped the carved images as long as the house of God was made or was at Shiloh. So there's kind of this like hope. Oh, well, eventually that all ended, right? Sort of, sort of. Their idolatry stopped for a little bit under King David. 
and then under King Solomon. But then Solomon's son uh, ended up splitting the kingdom, and the tribe of Dan went straight back to its idolatry. And it remained in its idolatry until they went into exile. Uh, the, the Assyrians came and conquered the Danites, and they went into exile. So the promised land doesn't fix their heart. The king, a king comes, David, and he doesn't quite fix their heart. They need something better. They need something better than a promised land. They need something better than a temporal king like David. They need Jesus. They need Jesus who promises not external changes, Because external changes aren't capable of changing anything in any sort of lasting sense. See, Christ comes with the gospel, calls us to repentance and faith, calls us to turn from our our idolatry, but he doesn't call us to do it on our own strength. He changes our hearts and gives us the ability to do it. That is the promise of Christ. When he comes, he grants the Spirit, and the Spirit changes your heart. So that now, you're not enslaved to your idolatry anymore. You're not enslaved to the ways of the Canaanites. The gospel does this for us. The gospel gives us the new heart the promised land couldn't give us, nor could King David. And so when we turn to Christ through the gospel... God removes the Canaanite ways from our hearts and he gives us a new heart suitable to live in the promised land. And that's what we look forward to. That's what we hope in. The day when we will have our new hearts living in the promised land before God himself. Let's pray.